I've been with Love Chapel Hill for about six years, um, and I'm a leader on the hospitality team. And today I will be reading 1 Kings 3, 5 through 15. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, ask whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne every, this very day. Now, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen and great people to too numerous to count or own number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked this for him. So God said to him, Since you have asked this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no, no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and my commands, as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been just a dream. He realized he returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all his court. Amen. Thank you, Shaquilla. Have you ever had a dream? Have you ever dreamed of something that you really long to become a reality, a dream come true? Uh, when I was a kid, like young elementary school, my dream was to be a baseball player. Okay, this is before I fell in love with basketball. I know I talk about that too much. But uh, before that, um, I wanted to be a baseball player because my older brother was a baseball player and I wanted to be like him. So that was like my dream. OK, so I went out and joined up with uh, Little League Baseball and I came out there. I was ready to go, man. I, uh, I, I used to wear these glasses that were like as big as my face. OK, and I was out there and I looked like Squints Paladores from Sandlot. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> if you haven't seen the movie Sandlot, then let me encourage you to do that. And also think about what you've done with your life up to this point, okay? You need to see that movie, all right? And uh, so I'm out there, and I'm so excited for this chance. I'm playing second base, and uh, pretty soon after I get out there, the batter hits the ball, and it goes right to the shortstop. And so I know what to do. I've been watching baseball, watching my older brother play, so I run to second and uh, there's a runner uh, at first, he's coming to second, so I put my foot on the bag, I get my glove ready, the shortstop scoops up the ball, does this nice little underhand toss to me, all right, this is going to be an easy out, I'm so pumped, I'm ready, but when he throws the ball up, the arch of the ball, it goes a little high, and it gets right in the light, okay, so I lose track, I'm like, this is not good, I can no longer see the ball and so a lot of things are going through my young mind, all right? I'm like, I'm just going to put my glove up and just pray that the Lord will direct this ball to my glove. Please, Lord, all right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and can direct the ball. Please, Jesus, all right? So I got my hand up there, 
and, and waiting. And then finally, suddenly, I can see the ball again just as it passes my glove and hits me in the eyeball. <laughs> so I'm wearing these glasses, and, and the, the hit actually broke my glasses. All right, the lens falls out, my glasses fall apart, and I'm like trying to pick up my glasses while the teammates are like, just get the ball, just get the ball. And I remember that runner from first, I remember seeing him tag second and round, headed towards third, and I'm thinking, man, he didn't even stop to see if I was okay, all right? Come on. That was pretty much the end of my baseball career, all right? It ended after that. Have you ever had a dream? Some of our dreams pan out, but a lot of our dreams, the things that we have dreamed for ourselves, we watch them fall apart. Have you ever had a dream? Today we're going to talk about Solomon as we've been going through this series together. and We've been looking at these Old Testament figures, these significant Old Testament figures who heard the word of the Lord. There's a soundtrack that runs all the way through Scripture, this, this thread that ties the whole thing together, this one song through Scripture that makes the whole story move along, and it is the voice of God. We're looking at these Old Testament people who, who have heard the voice of the Lord. We're rooting ourselves in that full sweep of the whole story. They heard the voice of the Lord, and they responded in obedience. They didn't just hear, they listened. And they didn't just listen, they obeyed. And they began to move in response to that. Solomon is one of those figures. But as we will see, unfortunately, what is, starts out as a dream come true becomes a dream that falls apart. It's a dream that falls apart. As Shaquille already read for us, we have this, this moment where God appears to him and speaks to Solomon through this dream and says, ask and I'll give it to you. What do you want, Solomon? Ask for it, and I'll give it to you. A lot of times we're listening for an answer from the Lord, but often it's a question from the Lord that really reveals our deepest desires. What do you want? What's the one thing you want above everything else? I'll give it to you. Can you imagine that? What if the Lord said that to you? What if you heard the Lord speak clearly to you, and he said, ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. You guys, when you came in today, you got one of these tags. It's representing a gift tag. And what, what if, as you look at this throughout the, the sermon today, throughout the message, as you hold on to this, what if you keep asking yourself that question? What is it? What is the gift that I really want? If I had this like blank check kind of gift and I could make it anything that I want, what's the deepest desire of my heart? What would I ask for? What would I ask for? And as we work through this, maybe the Lord will start to ask you some questions and it will reveal the thing that you desire most might reveal something about you. What would you ask for if you had that opportunity? Anything, anything. Solomon asks for wisdom. He asks for wisdom. This is a brilliant moment in Scripture. And this isn't one of those things where he's like trying to play the system. All right. Where he's like, OK, I'm going to ask God for this. But really, hopefully, hopefully he gives me these other things. OK. And, and I can't believe he didn't say I would like like unlimited wishes. All right. You always got to start with that. But he doesn't. He says wisdom. 
Lord, give me wisdom. He says, I'm just a child. He's not he's not literally like technically a child at this point. He's probably about 20 years old. He's born about halfway through David's 40 year reign as king. So he's probably about 20 years old. But he recognizes that the weight that is on him and the task in front of him, he's not prepared for this. He is not prepared. And he says, Lord, I need your help. Will you please give me your wisdom? Will you direct me? Give me a discerning heart so that I'll know what direction to lead your people so that I can lead them with your heart and not just with my own. Lord, give me wisdom. What a brilliant Brilliant request. Wisdom in the biblical context, we have to understand that, yes, it has something to do with intellect. Scripture is always pushing us to expand the edges of our intellect, to pursue knowledge with everything that we have. It's always pushing us towards that. There is not a divide between reason and faith. There's not a divide between intellect and faith. Not at all. We'll we'll dig into that a little bit later here. We're called to engage our heart and our minds fully in the pursuit of knowledge. But wisdom is actually deeper than just a pursuit of knowledge. Wisdom is applied knowledge. It's actually living out what the Lord reveals. And he asks for wisdom. Wisdom in Scripture is knowing God, experiencing God, being in a relationship with him to know not just not just knowledge about him but to know him deeply in a way that transforms who we are and that's what Solomon asks for and the Lord says this is a good request and and he's pleased with this prayer and he says I'm not only going to give you wisdom I am going to pour wisdom out on you there's not going to be anyone like you who's ever lived but I'm going to also give you wealth beyond what you can imagine And if you will walk in the path that I'm laying out for you, like your father David did, if you will walk in step with this covenant that I've made with your father David, then I will also give you long life. Solomon, what we see here is when he's given that opportunity, what he asks for is not just a gift. He's asking for the giver. He's asking for the giver. Lord, I want wisdom, which means I want to know you deeply. He's asking for the giver. And the Lord answers and he says, I will do that. He grants this prayer and he pours it out on him. Wisdom and wealth beyond anything that the people had ever seen. Beyond anything that the people had ever seen. In this same chapter, right after this passage, we get an example of this play out. Where two mothers come to him and they say, King Solomon, we need you to decide this dispute for us. And it's two mothers fighting over one child. And they both claim to be the mother of this child. And they're, they're in this dispute over this, this tragic and heartbreaking dispute if you read through the story. And Solomon in his wisdom says this. Here's how we will decide who the mother is. Is Since we can't decide, since you're both bringing this debate and this argument, what we'll do is, this is, this is just tragic that he even says this, but here's what he says. We'll divide the baby right down the middle and you can each have half. And one mother says, that's a wise ruling, king, because if I can't have my child, then I don't want anyone to have my child. And the other mother says, oh, no, 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 no. The, the child is hers. The child belongs to her. Let her keep 
the child. Just, just let her have, don't touch the child, just let her have the child. And King Solomon says, obviously, the mother is the second woman. And that, that heart of the mother shines through. And it's this brilliant and wise ruling as he makes that decision. As it's, the story goes on, we see more and more the wisdom and the wealth and the influence of Solomon get outlined. He expands the king, kingdom of Israel in a way that hadn't happened before. There's this ridiculous stockpile of wealth that he builds up. He gains worldwide fame where leaders from other countries are coming just to see what it is he's doing. They want to sit in his presence. They want to hear what he has to say. They want to be close to him. They want to be connected to him. And it just continues to build. Not only does he build up the kingdom of Israel and build up the stockpile of wealth, but he also builds the temple of God. And it is glorious and it is the pride and joy of the people of Israel as he gets to be the one to build the temple, the house of God. It begins or it continues what is known as Israel's golden age. What began with his father, David, now carrying out through David's son, Solomon. These two kings together, this is known as the golden age. And to this day, Jewish people look back on that as the golden age of the kingdom of Israel. There was never a time like that after, never a time before. Out of this doesn't just come this this wealth and, and, and influence, but we also see the writings of Solomon that we get through scripture. The Song of Songs is attributed to him, and also much of the book of Proverbs is attributed to him as well. A proverb is this short and simple little saying, and it's deceptively small and simple, but it carries, it is this vessel that carries this deep wisdom within a short saying, and he was a master at this and the wisdom of God is seen through it probably the most famous of the proverbs is proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 and 6 and here's what Solomon has to say trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path This is probably the most famous of the Proverbs because it sums up the wisdom of God in this one short poetic statement. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. This is at the center of the entire picture. Once again, it's this idea of applied knowledge, of walking with him, of following him, of submitting ourselves to him. This is wisdom. This is wisdom, not just to know in your mind, but to have it applied in your life. That is trust. That is trust. And trust in the Lord is wisdom. You've probably heard the story before about the showman who is putting on this show out by Niagara Falls. And he's walking across a tightrope across Niagara Falls. Kind of crazy, right? But not only is he doing that, but he's also pushing a wheelbarrow across this tightrope and crossing over Niagara Falls. And the people are eating it up and they are loving it. And he does this and they're cheering and they're going crazy for him. And he says, "Okay, who thinks I can do that again? And they're all like hands up. Yeah, let's see it again. Let's see it again. And he's like, "Okay, who's going to get in the wheelbarrow? 
who's going to get in the wheelbarrow? That is applied wisdom. That is trust. That is trust. Not to only believe it, but to actually apply it to your life. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. This word trust is so key all throughout Scripture. It's something that points forward to the New Testament, something that points backwards all the way through the Old Testament. In fact, we can follow this idea of trust all the way back to the break point of sin, where sin first enters into the picture of humanity in Genesis chapter 3. We think of this moment where Adam and Eve taste the fruit. But the sin didn't simply begin when they tasted the fruit. It began before that. When they started to believe the whisper and the lie of the serpent that said, Can you really trust him? Can you really trust that what he tells you is what is best for you? And they begin to believe the whisper and the lie. And before they ever take a taste of the fruit, the trust has already been broken in their hearts. So where it all begins. It also points all the way forward to the New Testament. To salvation through Jesus Christ. And it's at the central point of the gospel. That we are saved by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Jesus Christ alone. Full faith in him. We put our trust in him. It's not through our own actions, not leaning on our own understanding or our own merit or anything that is within us. We know that it comes from him. Jesus says this, come follow me. That's the invitation. Trust me. Trust me. Leave everything else behind and come follow me. Put it all in on me. Lay down your life. Take up the cross. Trust me. This is the invitation of the gospel to trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And this word Heart here can also be translated in multiple ways. The Hebrew word here, it carries several different meanings. And and this weight in the word of not just the idea of heart, but also of mind and of soul. It's this holistic, our whole selves. We are trusting in the Lord with all that we have and all that we are. The head and the heart engaged together in trusting him. Trust. It's at this central part. And what we see in Solomon is actually a tragic twist to his story. Because as he lays this out in the book of Proverbs and in this statement in Proverbs chapter 3, as we follow his story, we begin to see the ways in which he breaks from this path. In the ways in which his trust begins to be turned inward on himself. Instead of putting his trust in the Lord. We see a failure on his part. As he starts to put his trust in the gifts that God has given him. Instead of in the giver himself. So he begins to trust in his own wealth. He begins to trust in his own understanding. And we can watch this subtle progression through these chapters in 1 Kings, and especially as we get to chapter 10 and chapter 11 in the book of 1 Kings, we can see the way it plays out. It's been outlining for us these achievements, these great achievements of Solomon, but those very achievements become the cracks in the foundation of his character. As he begins to trust in his own wealth and in his own wisdom, he takes pride in that. He ends up taking 700 wives And 300 concubines. 
which is tragic and the exploitation of that and thinking that he can have whatever he wants and seeing other human beings simply as property that belongs to him. He also cynically looks at these marriages as an opportunity to build political alliances with people who could be his enemies. So he's not trusting in the Lord to take care of him. He's trusting in his own wisdom to build this network of relationship that he's really relying on. He builds up chariots and horses. And all of this is laid out already in the book of Deuteronomy where God warns the people in the future In the future, if you have a king, they must not take multiple wives. They must not build alliances with other countries through those marriages. And they must not trust in chariots and horses. He does all of those things. He completely steps away because his trust is in the gifts instead of in the giver. And what becomes of it? Not only does he write the book of Song of Songs and and many of the Proverbs, he also writes another book in the Bible. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. And what is the thesis statement of Ecclesiastes? Everything is meaningless. And this person of deep wisdom, and you can just soak in it, in the richness of it throughout the book of Proverbs. But then we get to the book of Ecclesiastes and he says everything is meaningless. Everything under the sun, there is no meaning. I've searched for the meaning. I've used all of my intellectual power. I've used all of my influence to try to track it down. There is no meaning in this world under the sun. Put his trust in himself and look where it brought him. After that, the kingdom splits apart once his son once Solomon is gone and his son takes the throne after that the the united kingdom of Israel is done it splits in half and the kingdom is never the same and both kingdoms end up going into captivity and end up being destroyed the golden age is over because his trust shifts towards the gifts instead of towards the giver The dream is dead. The covenant is lost. Until. Until the promise of God is fulfilled. And the covenant that he made with David. Where he says, David, I will put your son on the throne. And a son of David, someone from your line, will reign on Israel's throne forever. And that promise is fulfilled and completed generations later through another person who emerges from the line of David, from David's family line, another son of David, and his name is Jesus. Amen. The true king, not only of Israel, but of the entire world. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And in Jesus, we see a complete rebuke of what we have seen in the life of Solomon. Something I discovered this week that I had never seen before is the crazy way in which the life of Jesus in this one particular passage in Luke chapter 12. We're going to start at verse 13. If you've got your Bibles to turn there. Luke chapter 12 verses 13 through 34. We see repeated one after another rebuke of the life of Solomon and showing us through the life of Jesus what it was intended 
to be like. Listen to this. It begins with this statement in, in chapter 13. Someone in, the, uh, in chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher. Let's stop right there. Why do they call Jesus teacher? Because he is a man full of wisdom. They are drawn to this wisdom. The world had never seen anything like Solomon until the arrival of Jesus. And the wisdom in the teaching of Jesus, people are drawn to it. They want to hear what he has to say, and they recognize the authority and the wisdom in this. Solomon was often referred to as the teacher through the book of Proverbs. And that's who Jesus is known as, the teacher. Let me say to you today, some of you who are here, you are not sure about Christianity. Maybe you're seeking to know what it's all about. Maybe you're curious in some way about Christianity. Maybe you're flat out skeptical about Christianity. And we just want to say you are welcome and we're glad you're here. And we need you to be a part of this with us. We need you here. Not only do we want you here, we need you here. Ask your questions. They are welcome. Here's what you need to know, though. I want to challenge you to examine the teachings of Jesus. Before you make up your mind about Christianity, look at the teachings of Jesus. But don't only look at the teachings. Look at the teacher himself. Look at the teacher himself and look at the ways in which this wisdom of Jesus in his words is completely matched up with his life. The way he lived, what he taught. So many of you, you want to write off Christianity. You've had a bad experience with Christianity because of Christians, right? You say there's this gap between what Christians say they believe and how they actually live. And that gap right there is nothing but frustration for you. And it creates disbelief. And we want to say we're sorry for that. And we are definitely guilty of that. But I also want to challenge you. Christianity is not built on Christians. It's never been built on Christians. Christianity is built on Christ. It's built on Jesus. So look at the life of Jesus. Before you dismiss Christianity, you can't dismiss it based on Christians because we're a bunch of screwed up people. That's why we're drawn to Jesus because we realize how desperately we need him. So don't write off Christianity because of Christians. You've got to look at Jesus and you've got to look at Christ. You've got to look at him. And I challenge you, look at his life and find one place in which what he said did not match up with who he was. Look at him. Look at him. And if you still want to dismiss it, then that's understandable. Once you've, ex- once you've examined him. But you can't dismiss it because of Christians. That's not intellectually honest. You've got to look at Jesus himself. Wrestle with that. Teacher, they said. Teacher, they come to him and they say, look, my brother, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Okay, two brothers with Solomon. It was two mothers who came to say, hey, settle this dispute with us. With Jesus, it's two brothers who come and say, settle this dispute with us. Tell my brother to divide his, our inheritance. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me? That's really what it says. Okay, he really says, man, I didn't just add that. I like it. I added the inflection, but I think that's probably accurate. Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed because life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Rebuke of Solomon's missteps and mistrust 
and where he placed it. He then goes on to tell a parable. A parable is very similar to a proverb. It's this deceptively short and small vessel that carries deep, deep wisdom in it. And he goes on to tell a parable, not just one parable, but in this section, he tells three in a row. Three illustrations in a row that he gives. And he says, listen, there was this man. He was incredibly rich and he was so rich. He said, what am I going to do with everything that I have? I know what I'll do. I'll tell, tear down the barns I have because they don't hold my stuff. And I'll build bigger barns. I'll build bigger barns. And Jesus says, what a fool. Because he didn't realize that that very night his life would be demanded of him. And he makes this statement that the man in this parable says, I will take it easy. I will eat, drink, and be merry. Anybody ever heard that before? Here it is right here. I will eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus is not just making that statement up. He's actually quoting Isaiah chapter 22. But he doesn't finish what it says in Isaiah chapter 22. In Isaiah chapter 22, the rest of the statement goes like this, and you know it. Eat, drink, and be merry for... Tomorrow we die. He intentionally leaves it out. This man had no thought of that. I will just eat, drink, and be merry. I'm not thinking about that tomorrow I will die because my wealth is protecting me. Because my wealth makes me invincible. And I've built up this force field around me with the wealth that I've built up. But Jesus says, what a fool. What a fool. And in a way, he's looking back to the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, and calling him straight up a fool. Because of the misdirection of his trust. He's not only quoting Isaiah though. Right there. He's also quoting the book of Ecclesiastes. He is literally quoting Solomon himself. Who in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 says. Eat, drink and be merry. Because under this sun everything is meaningless. So you might as well party. (laughs) Because this is all we've got. This is all we've got. And Jesus says what a fool what a fool you have looked to the gifts and you have forgotten the giver he goes through and again and again it's like this critique over and over of solomon he says don't worry don't worry what's the opposite of worry the opposite of worry isn't certainty the opposite of worry is trust trust in the lord with all your heart And don't lean on your own understanding. Consider the ravens, he says. God takes care of them. And if he sees the birds, how much more important are you than than they are? You are his treasure. He loves you more than the birds and he takes care of them. And consider the lilies. He goes to say this directly. Look at the lilies of the field, how beautifully they are dressed. Not even Solomon in all of his glory was dressed like one of those. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and then the climax. But seek first the kingdom and all these other things will be added. That's the promise that was given to Solomon. God, I want you. You want me? I'm giving you these other things as well. Seek first the kingdom and the other things will be added. But if you seek first the other things, then you will lose them and the kingdom as well. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, he says in verse 34 of this passage. Where was Solomon's treasure? It was in his stuff. It had moved away from the giver and he put his treasure and his trust in the gifts. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We have been given the treasure of heaven. 
broken and poured out for us, what would your gift be? What would you ask for? If he said, I'll give you anything, what would you ask for? Do you see this tag a little bit differently now than you saw it at the beginning of the message? What would you ask for? We have to seek not just the gifts, but the giver and the very treasure of heaven has been poured out for us. The gift has been given and the giver has given himself. The giver has given himself. One of our friends from the street handed me this poem last week. And it's so beautiful. Here's what he says. This is a person who every single day deals with the reality of this, with God seeing the ravens and providing for the ravens. And this person every single day has to wrestle with that. God, will you provide for me too? This person wrestles every single day with the reality of the lilies. God, you've dressed them. Will you dress me to every single day. And here's what he has to say. Sticks and stones will break my bones. But words hurt more. And indifference hurts the worst. So lighten up. Give a smile. Go the extra mile. If you need me to say you'll be okay. I can't. But do it anyway. Because Jesus gave and gave and gave. Everyone's life to save. The giver has given the gift and the giver gave himself. We're going to celebrate communion today. This feast of the table of the Lord, the very treasure of heaven, broken and poured out for the salvation of the world. We're going to celebrate the cup of the new covenant, the true son of David, the true king of Israel and of the entire world who says this is the fulfillment of all of the covenants once and for all. And I poured out my blood to seal it. Every time you taste of this cup, remember what I have done. We're going to invite you to the table here in a moment. And as you come, I want you to contemplate. What would you ask for? What is your deepest desire? What do you really want? Are you focused on the gifts? Or is your heart crying out for the giver? The giver has given himself. If you want to embrace that today, then we invite you to the king's table. The treasure of heaven broken and poured out for us there'll be a cup and a and bread at both sides come tear off a piece of bread and dip it into the cup taste and see that the lord is good and as we say don't tear off just a tiny little piece there are no crumbs in the kingdom tear off a big old chunk all right grace enough to choke on let's do this we invite you to the table of the lord if you need a gluten-free option then that will be here as well two stations one on this side one on that side, come forward. And if you need prayer, our friends Caroline and Nancy, one will be on either side here to pray with you. Maybe to help you discern through that. What is the one prayer that you would pray? What's the one gift? 
pray that your heart will long for the giver himself. Amen.